Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Jesus, the King Who Came to Die, a study of the Gospel of Mark. This dynamic, fast-paced book gives the story of Jesus the Messiah, God's Son, the King, who came to suffer and die to save His people. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. So we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 6, verses 45 uh, to 46. And um, this is continuing on where we've been looking in Mark's gospel. And this is right after, actually, the feeding of the 5,000. It's one of those places where it's really hard to actually even break up the text because they're so tightly interwoven. But we'll be looking at verses 45 to 56 of Mark chapter 6. The verses will be up on the screen, uh, and you can follow along in your Bible. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. And when they crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran through that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched him were healed. When we read this story, we recognize this is actually one of the most famous stories in the Scripture. In fact, the, the whole metaphor, you've probably heard, if there's somebody that you've worked around that is really, really great at what they do, what's a metaphor we use for them? Uh, that, that guy or that woman, they walk on water. And what we mean by that is not, of course, that they literally walk on water, but it's a reference to say they are unbelievable. They can do things that no one else can do. In fact, a few years ago, there was the, the movie Bruce Almighty where Jim Carrey was given the powers uh, of God for a week, so to speak. But in one of the famous scenes where he's meeting with Morgan Freeman, who is the God character, Morgan Freeman walks off on the water. He gets out of the boat and walks on the water because when they want to show the power of what it means to be God, they actually used this event of Jesus walking on the water. What's amazing, however, is this is one of the stories that scholars have spent the last century trying to explain away. Jesus wasn't really on the water. He was on the edge of the water. They've tried to come up with all of these different things regarding what was going on. 
all of which was pointless, it's very, very clear. The scripture doesn't say everybody, in fact, walks on the water. And even though we use the metaphor and say, that guy walks on water, does he really walk on water? No, if he gets out of the boat, he sinks, okay? Uh, Jesus walks on the water. And in fact, uh, Peter, we know from Matthew's gospel in this very account, did for a little bit. Uh, I'm going to actually talk about that in After Hours, not today in the teaching, because Mark, interestingly enough, does not have it in his gospel, even though he's getting it from Peter. Uh, Mark does not record that incident. But this is a very famous event. And there is something that is going on here that is even more than just the miracle. As we've been seeing with Mark, usually Mark is telling us the story, but the way he's telling it, you can start to peel back and you see so much more and it's particularly related to the Old Testament. So let's dig in and see what's happening. The first thing that we might easily miss is the very first verse in this section is pretty unusual. Actually, the first two verses in this section. Uh, in Mark 6, 45 and 46, we see this this surprising uh, immediate actions of Jesus after the miracle. Remember, he had just fed the 5,000. Now, let's be honest, if we did something and a miracle like that happened, what would people tell us to do today? What, what would you do after you've turned you know, five loaves and two fish into food to feed 5,000 people? I mean, right, you'd get a publicist out, you would have the news there, you would strike the iron while it was hot, so to speak. Notice what Jesus does. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get in the boat to go on ahead of him. Now, what's interesting is Mark uses two very strong words. One is that word that we've seen a lot in his gospel that Mark likes immediately, the word uthus. He's saying there's no break. I mean, they have just come back with the 12 basketfuls, and Jesus immediately does this. The second word is what the NIV has as made them get into the boat, Nothing wrong with that translation, but it's normally translated in the New Testament, compelled. It's a strong word. Jesus is not making a suggestion. He is driving the disciples down to the boat and getting them into the boat quickly. And he then dismisses the crowd, disperses them and sends them away, and he goes off to a mountain by himself to pray. And it's specifically being mentioned here that he is going off by a mountain to himself to pray. Um, and there, Mark's wanting us to kind of ask, why is this going on? What, what was the urgency to get the disciples to leave? And then what's happening with Jesus going off to pray? Mark doesn't give us the specifics. Interestingly, John does. And this is where there's, there's benefit to reading each gospel by itself. But when they recount the same story, there's also benefit in reading them together. We get different aspects in Matthew, Mark, and John, the three that uh, contain this event in the life of Jesus. Luke, interestingly, doesn't. As I said, Matthew is the only one that tells us about Peter walking on the water. And I'll describe a little bit about why that is in After Hours. John focuses a little bit more on what's happening in the crowd. And in John 6, 14, and 15, we read this. After the people saw the miraculous sign, that's the feeding of the 5,000 that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. 
So John tells us what's happening here is the people are looking at this and they've decided Jesus is the great prophet that Moses had spoken about in Deuteronomy and therefore he's the Messiah, he's the king, and we're going to make him king. We're going to have this guy seize political power. It's time for him to politically bring about the kingdom of God. And they're going to try and make him king by force, notice it says. Whether Jesus wants it or not, this is what they are going to do. And so this is the same temptation that had been offered by Satan to Jesus in the wilderness. You remember when he's in the wilderness, Satan actually tells him, hey, I'm showing you all the kingdoms of the world and you can have all of this. And in essence, we have to understand what he's saying. You can skip the whole cross thing. You can get the crown without the cross. And Jesus rebukes Satan and says, no, it doesn't work that way. The crowd is now, make no mistake, in the wilderness. Remember, Jesus had been the hungry and Satan said, you can turn the You can turn these stones into bread. Jesus is in the wilderness, has just multiplied and created food in the wilderness to spread a table, and now the crowd is the mouthpiece of Satan. And they are back and saying, you should be king. Now, Jesus knows what's going on, but here's the problem. The disciples would be very susceptible to this. See, they they, they would get sucked into this. So Jesus immediately compels them to get in the boat. I got to get you guys out of here because there are, there are bad ideas awash around us right now and I got to get you away and then he's going to go off by himself to pray just like he did when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. He was 40 days fasting and praying. You remember when the crowds first saw him doing the miracles way back in Mark 1? He withdrew and went off by himself to pray and then in fact had to leave the area because the crowds have been a constant source of temptation. And so he's compelled the disciples to get away and then in the face of the renewed temptation in the wilderness, Jesus is off by himself praying. That's the beginning of what's going on in the story. And so This is just important for us to see as we follow Mark's telling of what's going on in the life and ministry of Jesus. The crowds often have false expectations of Jesus' identity, his purpose, and his kingdom. Okay, Remember, this is why Jesus does not call himself Messiah in the Gospel of Mark. That's not a title that he really likes. He constantly refers to himself as the Son of Man which in the Old Testament is the same thing as the prophet, is the same thing as the Messiah, but it doesn't have all of the baggage with it that the crowds have. The crowds are constantly doing this, and disciples can get seduced by these worldly views of Jesus and his kingdom if they're not careful. Now, this isn't going to be a huge focus today, but let me say, is the same temptation here for you and me today? See, if you listen today, there are some who want to change the identity the character and the teaching of Jesus to make him line up with our current cultural morals. Oh, Jesus would never judge any of this. Have you read your Bible? He most certainly would. He's not progressive and trying to get with the latest trends. It's disastrous. It's disciples giving in to the voice of Satan. But let me say, There are believers on the other side have the same idea as the crowd in the wilderness. We're going to use political power to bring about the kingdom of God. 
And that is the same exact source of temptation. It's just as satanic. It's the same temptation that Jesus is trying to get the disciples into the boat and get them out of there because he doesn't want either of those ways. He is not looking for us to do that. Disciples have to resist both of these satanic temptations and embrace Jesus and his kingdom as they actually exist. One of the things we should recognize when we read through the Gospel of Mark is Jesus is constantly being the way nobody expects him to be. Okay? And he has, see, I like crown without cross. Okay? Who in here likes the cross? Nobody likes the cross. Unfortunately, it is the way of the kingdom. Lamentation comes before praise. Death comes before resurrection. Cross comes before crown. And anything that tries to short-circuit that is not the voice of Jesus. It's the voice of the enemy. And it's an ever-present temptation. So Jesus has had to send the disciples away. And then we get down to the part of the story that we usually think of what is going on. But even here, I think we miss what uh, what. Mark wants us to really grasp out of this story. Notice as the disciples go off in verses 47 and 48, we're told evening comes. And remember, I talked about this when they went out across the lake before and there was where Jesus was asleep in the boat. The evening time, the, the late afternoon and evening is when the winds really kick up there on the Sea of Galilee. They're known, it's still a common phenomenon even to today. So they get out, Jesus is on the land, they're out at the sea and the winds have in fact kicked up. We read in verse 48, they are straining at the oars because the wind is against them. They're trying to get out. John actually tells us they're about three miles out, but they are laboring and working. But notice here, even though this is some ways similar to Jesus when he was asleep in the boat and the miracle he did there, there's a lot of distinctions Mark wants us to notice. There, their lives were in danger. They were afraid because the boat was being swamped. It was about to go under. It was like, like a hurricane had blown. Like, that's not what's going on here. They're just having a struggle. It's taking them a long time to get where they're going. There, there's no indication that they are in danger, uh, that, that you know, they're doing. They just are having a hard time making progress to get to their destination. Now, Jesus is aware of what's going on, and he's watching them, and because they're about three miles away, and the Gospel of John in John 6, 19, it actually tells us uh, that, it, that it's, uh, well, and actually Mark tells us it's about the fourth watch of the night that he's going to be doing this. This is between 3 and 6 a.m. So Jesus is supernaturally seeing what's happening with the disciples. He's aware of what's happening. You can't see three miles out at 3 a.m., but Jesus sees them. Mark's giving us a little hint of who we are uh, dealing with here. And notice what he does is, as the disciples think they're alone, as we read verses 48 to 52, they think they're alone. They are struggling. They're not sure why Jesus has sent them out there. But once again, they're encountering all this resistance, not because they disobeyed Jesus, but because they obeyed him. They did what he said. They got in the boat, and they're trying to get where they're going, but everything seems to be against them. They think they're alone, but Jesus is watching them. He's fully aware of their struggles. And then interestingly, he comes out to them, and we're told he is walking on the lake or walking on the water, which is an incredible 
miracle, and it's yet another miracle that's recorded in Mark's gospel that gives us a clue to the identity of Jesus. I mean, you could, even though we've, we've entitled Mark, you know, the king who came to die, you could entitle the entire gospel of Mark, who is this? Because that's a question that keeps coming up. Who is this? You remember before, even the wind and the waves obey him. Last time they'd been out on the sea, uh, we read that. But notice the disciples are out there and Jesus is walking on the water, but what is their response when Jesus shows up? Ah, it's a ghost. They weren't afraid before then, but now that he showed up, being as they are throughout the Gospels, an exercise in missing the point, rather than recognizing who Jesus is and what he's doing, they think he's a ghost. And He's got to speak out to them, and I'm going to be unpacking all of this to, to tell them who he is. But interestingly, notice what Mark says, and he's going to come back to this later. In verse 52, he said they, they've not understood this because they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Now, this is amazing, both because he's stating that their hearts were hardened, even the disciples are struggling. They are dull. They're not understanding this. But Mark in particular is saying, look, now think of all the other miracles we've seen in this gospel. I mean, Jesus has even raised a dead girl. He's calmed the seas. He drove out the legion of demons. He's healed lepers everywhere. They've heard him teach. But notice Mark specifically brings up they had not understood about the loaves. And in fact, in Mark 8, 17, he's going to bring it up again to say they still don't get it. Because, remember as we saw last time, it wasn't just Jesus doing some tricks with fish and bread. He was the Lord, the good shepherd, spreading a table in the wilderness for those who were sheep without a shepherd. Okay? And so Mark is saying, they should have figured out who this is. Okay? There's only one who spreads a table in the wilderness for the people who can feed the multitude in the wilderness. It is the Lord. But they have not understood. But Mark is saying, look, you and I, because we kind of know the end of the story, we should be aware of who it is. Jesus is giving all the clues that are necessary for us to know who he is. And that, in fact, is the primary thing in this story. Just as the feeding of the 5,000 was not about tricks with fish and bread, but rather showing that he is the Lord, the Lord who had fed Israel in the wilderness, the Lord who can spread a table in the wilderness. Here, Jesus is being uh, identified and it is revealing his glory, his goodness, and his identity to the people. Now, why do I say that? First off, because in the Old Testament, God is the water walker. Now, there's many places this is brought up, but I'm going to bring up one passage that is really clear. In Job chapter 9, verses 8 and 11. Now, Job was originally, of course, written in Hebrew, but it had been translated into Greek by this time, and the early church mainly used the Greek version, the Septuagint. And notice what it says about the Lord. This is speaking of the Lord in uh, Job 9, verses 8 and 11. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Now, the NIV is translated as treads on the waves of the sea. is the exact same phrase as walking on the lake in Mark. Same words. 
Treads and sea is the same words as walk and lake. And then notice in verse 11, when he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. Goes by is the same phrase as pass by. Interestingly enough, it's not passes me, it's goes by. But it's the same Greek word. Okay, so notice the Lord walks on the water and he passes by. Okay, Mark uses the same words, but do you notice what's interesting here? Job says when he walks by, I can't see him. You can't see God. Mark is telling us now you can because God has taken flesh. This isn't a guy who does some tricks. This is the Lord who created the heavens. This is the Lord who walked on the water, according to Job. The Lord who passed by, and he couldn't be seen, but now he can be. But Mark not only does that, if you have read your Old Testament a lot, the phrase passes by is used at two key junctures in the Old Testament. You remember, Moses has had all of these amazing things where the Lord has been there with him and he's been 40 days on the mountain. And remember, what does he ask God? What does he say he wants to do? Can I see you, Lord? And what does God say? Nah, you can't see me because if you see me, nobody can see me and live. But here's what I'll do. I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to put you in the rock of ages. And my glory, what's interesting is the Hebrew is actually my goodness is going to pass by. When they translate it into Greek, it's my glory is going to pass by you and you'll see the, the back of me. So notice in Exodus thirty three nineteen, the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness is the Hebrew. The, the Greek, when they translated it, was glory. I'm going to cause it to pass in front of you. Same word why Jesus is passing by them. See, Jesus doesn't have a bad GPS and just missed the boat when he went out. That's not what's going on. It's not. He's even waiting for them to cry out. Mark is saying, do you understand what's happening? Just as the Lord passed by and Job couldn't see him, just as the Lord passed by Moses, passed in front of Moses, the Lord is passing by the disciples. But it not only happened with Moses, and we'll read about it in Exodus 34 again in a minute, but Elijah. So notice we have the law and the prophets. Who's going to appear on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus? Moses and Elijah. Elijah, you remember, after he'd had the confrontation with the prophets of Baal, he goes to the cave, and he's in the cave, and he's distressed and he feels alone, and he feels like God has not seen him and is not watching over him. And the Lord says, go and stand out on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to, same Greek word, same exact word as in Exodus 33 and 34, we're going to see in just a minute, and in Mark. So make no mistake, it's really weird when you first read it in Mark, and you're like, why is he passing by? If you know they're having a problem in the boat and you've walked three miles on the water, I might point out, not just a little bit, you've walked three miles, why would you go by? Because the entire point was to pass by. The entire point is to show them you're still not getting who I am. 
Your hearts are hard. You, you didn't understand. I just spread a table in the wilderness. Psalm 78 asks, can God feed a multitude in the wilderness? Yes, I can because I am. And so notice that's the third thing that um, is brought up here is that remember what is, what is God's name that he reveals to Israel? Yahweh, which is I am. So notice in Exodus chapter 34, 6, we're told, and he passed in front of Moses, same word again, he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, proclaiming Yahweh, Yahweh. Moses, I'm the one who appeared to you in the burning bush and told you, I am. I'm going by you, Moses, and I am proclaiming, I am. That is who I am, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. Is it good to know that that's who the God we have? Okay, but again, notice, Moses is in the cleft of the rock because he can't see the great I am in the face and live. But notice what happens here. The disciples look and they see Jesus, and what is their response? Ah, it's a ghost. And Jesus speaks to them and says, take courage, it is I. Does anybody want to guess what the actual literal rending in Greek is? I am. It's not it is I. That sounds weird in English, isn't it? And, there, and there, I, there, there's a reason why they translate it. But maybe say this is what it is. Ego a me. I am. That's exactly what Jesus is proclaiming to them. This is the third way Mark is telling us. Who walks on the water? Yahweh walks on the water. Who passes by to reveal the glory and the goodness? Yahweh passes by and reveals his glory and goodness. Who says I am? Yahweh. And Jesus walks on the water. Jesus passes by. Jesus says, I am. Because Jesus is not a magician doing tricks. He is God in the flesh. The one that Job said, he passes by. He treads on the water, but I can't see him. Jesus is now saying, I can be seen because I have taken flesh. The one that Moses had to be hidden in the cleft of the rock because if you see me, you will die. Now if you see me, you will live. And the very one who, who said, I am, I am the creator, I am the redeemer, I am with you, that is who has come to them on the waves. So this is far more than Jesus just doing another miracle. Everything is intensifying because the disciples, have their hearts are hard. They still have not understood. And the sad thing is, even in this story, they don't get it. They're still missing it. But brothers and sisters, we need to understand and see who it is that has come to us and do it. So the reason the disciples do not need to fear is Jesus is not a phantasm, nor is he a ghost. He's not a magician doing tricks with fish and bread and walking on the water. He's none other than the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. The one who treads upon the waves, reveals himself to the people as their creator and redeemer, the very goodness and the very glory of of God. That is who is there with them. And notice, Mark then 
tells us what goes on, and it's almost like an afterthought what happens after this, but it's just because these things are confirmation of the essential point. When you've meditated and understood who the water walker is, who the one who passes by is, who the I am is, then these things are just confirmation of it. So notice, Jesus gets in the boat and what immediately happens? The wind dies down. Does it say he even says anything? No, it's because where Jesus is, the wind dies down. It's the, it's the eye of the hurricane, okay? It's all calm here. It may be chaos everywhere else, but if he's in the boat with you, all is okay. All right? So that's exactly what, jo- what Mark is saying here. Jesus' identity and glory are revealed as the wind must die down in his presence. The water walker rules the winds. Secondly, notice he then says, I mean, and I, and I love it, he goes from village to village. He's everywhere. People are just trying to touch him. And if you do it, you're healed. I mean, it's like this little PS at the end of it. It's like, really? Because that could be like be the whole story, right? I mean, just amazing stuff going on. But the reason is Mark's not downplaying him. But what he's saying is, do you understand that Jesus and identity are being revealed as sickness is healed by his presence because the water walker bears the diseases of people and they're healed by his presence. This is simply confirmation of what you've already found on the water. When you understand what happened, that he walked upon the waves, that he was passing by all the goodness and glory of God, that he's the I am, you don't really need anything else. Everything else is just confirmation of who he is. Now, what does this mean to us today? How do we respond to this? The first thing is I want to go back to the crowd for just a minute. See, there's a great danger. The crowd throughout Mark's gospel, it's almost always bad. If you read the crowd is there, expect something not going well. Because Jesus has his agenda and they've got their agenda. The crowd has their own desires for Jesus, but he will not come on their terms. See, in John's gospel, if you read this and continue up, this is the famous passage where Jesus says, you got to eat my flesh and you got to drink my blood. And all of a sudden the crowd's like, you're crazy. They, they literally go from thinking, we want to make you king to you're out of your mind in short term because they like him as long as he'll come the way they want. Okay, but he's not doing that. They want somebody who will give them free meals and wield political power. It's bread and circuses. That's what the mob has always wanted. Right down to the day. I'm not judging ancient mobs. Is that not how we do things today? I mean, man, if people will give you bread and circuses, it's amazing what we'll go along with. But see, Jesus is not doing this. The disciples themselves, it's not just the crowd, even the disciples still don't get it. It's amazing to me how often Jesus shows up in the Gospels, and rather than it being a comfort to the disciples, it causes more terror and fear. I mean, Jesus is coming out there, it ought to, I mean, especially in light of the fact they've been through a storm. Remember, I was asleep in the back of the boat, you got all upset, I stood up, I spoke, the wave stopped, now you're out on a boat, it's not nearly as bad a storm, I'm walking by, and rather than being comforted, you think I'm a ghost. 
kind of the whole point of what I'm showing you is the God who could not be seen now can be seen because I'm not a ghost. I've taken flesh. But the disciples are not understanding it. And this is imperative for us as we look at this. There is a huge temptation. This is, again, never, we should not read these and say, I'm glad I'm not dumb like the crowd. I'm glad I'm not dumb like the disciples. Because if we had been there, see, I would not have stood up in the boat and said, let me give you guys a theology lesson out of Job chapter 9. I'd have been screaming like the rest of them, right? Wetting my robes, doing the whole thing like they are. We face a temptation to misunderstand or even fear what Jesus is doing. We're going to see later, you remember, even, we, we all know the story, so I'll jump ahead a little bit, when finally one of the disciples gets it, and Jesus says, who am I? Who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What does Jesus respond with? You're right, the Father's revealed this to you. Now let me describe what that means. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. They're going to kill me. And what's Peter's response? You don't understand Jesus. Okay, strange set of words. <laughs> but immediately he doesn't. And what does Jesus have to tell him? Get thee behind me. Even the one who has understood, because we do not like his agenda. And let's be honest, we don't. Lord, where can I sign up for the crown without the cross? Where do I sign up to where we just skip all the hard stuff and get to where I'm in charge? That's what we all want. And don't get religious and act like it's not. That is what we want. And it is a huge temptation. So the question that comes to us is there's something that keeps us from responding to Jesus. See, perhaps th there, are, there are people today who are afraid of Jesus. Um, th they're afraid of him, but we need to understand he's come to redeem, to forgive, and to restore. Remember when, when the Lord passed by Moses, we say, I am the Lord, gracious, compassionate, Showing love to thousands. That is who our God is. But see, we sometimes are, are afraid if he really knew who I was. Well, here's the bad news and the good news. He does know. And the bad news is you are far worse than even you know. The good news is you are far more loved than you know. For some of us, we want Jesus, but we like him at a distance. Can you, can you just stand on the shore and tell the storm to stop? Can you just do it from a distance? You remember Israel, when Moses has seen the glory of the Lord and he comes down. I mean, what is Israel's response? Who do they want to go talk to Yahweh? Yeah, you do that. We're going to subcontract that out. Right? Because eh, I'm not too much about, you know, sometimes you go in there and like lightning breaks out and stuff, you know? I don't want that. And let's be honest, we can be that way. Can somebody else walk with Jesus for me? 
okay? I, I, I want somebody else in there. Sometimes the problem is we've got our own agendas. And I do want Jesus, and I want him close to me as long as he's doing it my way. I, I have, you, you know, you, you hear people constantly, you know, well, if that's the way God is, then I, well, if that's the way God is, then you need to get in line with that. That's the only reasonable end of that sentence, okay? We're not here to judge him. We are here to get in line with him. So, see, that's the, that's the problem with the crowd. Remember, they want him to be king, and then John goes on in one short chapter you can read in a matter of three or four minutes, and they, he's out of his mind, and they've all abandoned him. And that's when he has to even turn to the 12 and say, are you going to leave too? Where else will we go, Lord? Only you have the words of life, but see, the crowd doesn't care about that. Long as you're doing what we want, we will follow. So is there anything that's preventing us from drawing close to Christ? It might be a sin. It might be an agenda. It might just be fear that I don't really want to get that close. But see, in Jesus, the eternal, invisible God has stepped into time and become visible. In Jesus, the Lord says, when I pass by, you are going to see my glory, my goodness, and you're going to see my face. I want to see you face to face. I want to know you. I want to speak to you. I want to walk with you. That is why I have condescended and taken human flesh to walk with you. And so the good news is the Lord is here this morning, and as we're going to come to the table in just a minute, in Jesus we behold the face of God. But the good news is it's a face of love and mercy and forgiveness. And so we are called to lay down those other things. If it's an agenda, lay it down. If it's a fear, let it go. If it's a sin, say it's not. The, the true thing I long for is not that sin, it's Christ himself. Because that is what we are made for. And so we're going to come to the Lord's table, and I'm going to read a little bit of an extended section in just a moment from John chapter 6, because John doesn't actually even really give us the, the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper in his account. He kind of does his communion account in John chapter 6, where Jesus goes through, and remember, it's the famous passage, I am the bread of life. It's not the manna. You eat the manna, you die. You eat me, you eat the true bread of life, you live forever. And that is on the heels of this exact thing right here. When they land on the other shore and the crowd show up and he's doing all the healing, that's what goes on with them because they have misunderstood. The people wanted more tricks with fish and bread. I mean, it's so funny to watch them. They're like little kids. <clears throat> you know, everybody who's raised children or if you're like us and you've got grandchildren, now they're so transparent when they're trying to trick you into something, right? And you're looking at them and you're like, wow, you got to practice this more right? It's the way the crowds are. They're like, gee, Lord, how did you get here? And uh, any more bread? You know? Uh, well, you're telling us to believe in you. You know, Moses, I don't know, he gave bread? <laughs> I mean, they keep going back to that, Lord. I mean, you know, there was bread out there. It's like, yeah, I get it. And Jesus tells them, see, you're not following me because you want me. You're following me because your belly got full. Don't labor for that. 
don't work for that. That's not life. I am life. So we're going to come to the Lord's table to receive the bread and the cup of life. And again, as we do so, I'm going to begin by reading this extended passage in John chapter 6. This is uh, from John 6, 25 to 40. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you're looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Faith is work. <laughs> it's the only work that God looks for. Um, so they asked him, what miraculous sign will you give that we may see it and believe you, what will you do? Let me interject. How many miraculous signs have they seen by this point? I mean, our forefathers ate manna in the desert. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. <laughs> this is an exercise in missing the point, isn't it? <laughs> then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. The table we come to now is not the table of Bay Ridge Christian Church. It's not my table. I have the privilege of standing here. Whose table is this? The Lord's table. And it is for everyone who believes. It's that simple. Everyone who believes in me and comes to me, I will never drive away. Whatever other agenda we've had, whatever sin struggle we've had, whatever problem we've had, Jesus says, do you believe in me? Do you cling to me? Then come. Let me feed you. Let me give you life, not just temporal life, but eternal life. So if you are here today and you believe in Jesus, you are invited to this table to partake and to receive from the Lord himself. 
For what I receive from the Lord Jesus, I pass on to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're going to go ahead and pass out the elements. I remind you, take there's two cups in each thing. One's got the bread and one's got the juice. And as you get it, hold it. There'll be some quiet music playing. And I encourage you, let the Spirit speak to you. Is there anything that is keeping distance between you and Jesus? Because when the Lord passes by now, he wants to be seen. So let's hear from him. Is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Lord, you are the word made flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. You are the bread of life, and you came down from heaven. And through your work done in the flesh, all who believe may be saved and never hunger again. We confess this day that you are fully God and fully human, that you gave your flesh for the life of the world and all who come to you in faith will be given eternal life. Brothers and sisters, take and eat the bread of life. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? Lord, you are the true vine, and we are the branches, drawing our very life from you. We humbly acknowledge that apart from you, we can do nothing. Through your blood, we have been cleansed, redeemed, forgiven, and sanctified. And by your blood, our very life is sustained. Thanks be to God for the blood of Christ. Brothers and sisters, take and drink the cup of life. Let's stand together and cry out that the Lord who has come and passed by will reveal himself to us each and every day this week. Lord, today we have been reminded of who you are, the Lord of heaven and earth. But Lord, we are also reminded of how often we forget this, missing your work in our life, and all around us. So Lord, we are grateful for your patience and your promises. Lord, that you have called us by name, that you will never leave us or forsake us, no matter where we may be, and that you will complete 
the good work you have begun in us. So Lord, I pray that now you would reveal your goodness and your glory to us. And that Lord, you would do it each day this week. Lord, do this so that we might experience your presence in the depth of our soul. And that, Lord, in doing that, we would be encouraged and empowered for whatever we might face. Lord, we ask all of this in the name of Jesus, the one who is our very life. And God's people say, amen. Amen. Now, receive God's blessing. This is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 43. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, he who formed you, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. That God speaks to you and blesses you. You are blessed. Go forth and be a blessing. Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.